I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Um, I'm delighted to introduce Hanan Al Sheikh. Uh, Hanan is a novelist, short story writer, and playwright, and one of the leading contemporary women writers in the Arab world. She started out as a journalist before turning to fiction and has written many wonderful novels and stories, including The Story of Zara, Women of Sand and Myrrh, and Only in London. Her most recent book, which we'll be discussing today, is the story of her mother's life, The Locust and the Bird. Hanan has a real ability to draw you into the world of her characters. They make you, she makes you empathize with them, laugh and cry, and so I understand why for years her mother pleaded with Hanan to write the story of her life. Why are you nibbling from other people's dishes, she says to Hanan in the book. And eventually Hanan does agree to write her story, which is lucky for us because the result is an utterly absorbing and wonderful story which had me up till three in the morning reading. And it was one of those books that leaves you totally bereft when it's finished. Um, I'm delighted to have this chance to talk to Hanan. Um, me and Hanan really got to know each other a year ago when we went on the first Palestinian literary festival together. And in fact, we talked and talked all week. And on the last day we were there, we were talking so much that we went for a walk together and didn't real realize that we had wandered into an Israeli police headquarters where we only stopped talking when someone pointed a gun at us. And so. That's why I'm very happy to get another chance <laughs> in more civilized company to have, continue my conversation with Hanan. Um, so I, we begin to just talk a little bit and then Hanan's going to read from her book. But I wanted to start by asking you, Hanan, why it was that you resisted writing this story about your mother for so long when, when I know she had asked you many times? I remember the first time she asked me after I wrote 30 interviews with a prominent Lebanese woman. And she was very upset. Um, of course, my mother, I should be telling you that she couldn't read or write. So my, um, my other sister used to read everything I write to her. And she said, why are you writing about all these women? What about me? And I would answer, mother, they've done something. And she would say, like what? They're the first lawyer, the first doctor, the first politician, they've done something. And she would say, but I've done a lot more than them. 
they were they weren't oppressed like me. I fought. I did. I am resilient. I was, but of course, at that age, I didn't think that my mother was important and what she's done was, you know, uh, important to write about. And then later in, uh, later in life, when I started writing fiction, I became inspired by, by my mother, and I would write about um, an episode here, a short story there, and of course, my sisters and neighbors will read everything I've written. And she would say, you weren't fair in, in writing this. You know, you have to ask me about also my opinion. I would say, mother, I'm inspired by you. She would say, no, you shouldn't be inspired. You should listen. I have to tell, <laughs> I have to tell you my story. I have a story to tell. And uh, I know uh, deep down, subconsciously, I was resisting because my mother left when I was home, when I was seven years old. And I knew her story that uh, she was married off um, when she was very, very young, 14 years old. And she left home and she married her lover and she uh, made a family and that's it. I knew it, I would tell her, yes, I, I know your story. But one time, uh, um, especially the last 15 years, when I started going back to Beirut after the Civil War, we would talk, we would talk a lot. And she would tell me, please write, just listen to me and write my, my life story. It's very important. And I would say, no, she, she just wanted me to ease her guilt because she left. And um, I don't want to go to the past. But the last time, she really convinced me by telling me one thing. She, let, she said, look at me, daughter. It's now you should really listen to me. I don't want to feel that a piece of wood and a piece of lead uh, conquered me and defeated me. And I said, what do you mean? She said, isn't pencil made of piece of wood and a piece of lead. So think about it. Immediately I said, let's begin. And, and, and when, we when start. you did begin, would you um, write everything down or listen to it on, record it on a tape recorder? No, How did you do no it? I didn't want to, uh, to make her feel, you know, conscious. Yes. Uh, I would, we would sit and talk. So I said, close your eyes and imagine, at what age do you imagine yourself? And she said, nine years old or eight years old. And when I was running after my father, because we were very hungry, and my father left to, uh, and married another woman and left my mother, and we would go. And, and then she closed her eyes, and she was you know, remembering in an amazing way. She, um, she remembered, she was describing to me even so tiny details about the color of the soil, mm. about the shape of, of uh, uh, the mirror, about so many, about the color of the trees, everything, and about her feelings. So we, we, sat, uh, we, we sat everywhere in Beirut, in the mountain, 
uh, by the sea on her balcony and she would uh, she would tell me her story and then she would act to me a certain episode in the story because she was she used to mimic she was an amazing um, uh, amazing um, uh, storyteller because she couldn't read uh, and write so all her senses were uh, on her oral speeches she would stand like this like you know a storyteller and she would tell me oh my father my father did this to me and I ran and she would run and she, it was really amazing and then you would go back and write it down when you I, weren't I would I would go no while I'm with her I will take I notes see. I would yes of course I will take notes right. and then when I go when uh, I leave Beirut and uh, and come back to my home in London sometimes she will wake me up at two o'clock because she can't read or write to to uh, jot some um, uh, uh, anything she remembers you know she would call she said if I don't tell you now I'll forget them <laughs> so it's fine if if uh, you are awake now let me tell you what I've just remembered put them down put them down into writing it's the way you create her story you um, you tell uh, the first, there's a wonderful prologue where you are talking about how you came to write the book, mm -hmm. and then you enter completely into your mother's life from the first person. So after a short time, we feel as if we are, she is telling us the story. Yes. I can imagine that almost like you have your eyes closed, there the story is just, and I, um, I just wondered how much are her own words, or how much did you then have to reimagine some of it, and maybe even go back to the places that she described in order to get the colour of the earth, or was she so precise in her memories that it, it saved you that? Well, I think places are very important to me, like her. And every place she talked about, I knew. Right. And I grew up with. Like talking about our, um, our house in Beirut, where she lived with us. So this is my house, the house, house I grew up yes. in. And then um, talking about the room, where she used to meet her lover. She used to take me with her when I was very, very young. Yes. So I would remember so many things. And in the south of Lebanon, she took me, um, we went together before six months, before her death. And it was still vivid in my memory. Everything, I mean, the, the house, the, the trip. And she was showing me, she said, this is where I ran after my father. And this is the market where we, uh, we bought, uh, we, uh, we, we uh, got the, the dog. Or this is where we were looking for this and that. So um, in a way, um, in a way, she, she helped me before, before she died yes. doing everything. But at the same <coughs> time, I think, I, I discovered that we are so similar. Later, when she was telling me her story, I said, oh my God, she is, I'm like her. I care for details. I care for the five senses. I am, she's sensual, the way she is describing things orally. And I feel that I am sensual when I am writing. So in a way, we were, I was very close to her. By the time she finished the telling time. you yes. the end, your yes. relationship had changed completely, I Oh, imagine. yes, yeah, of course. And how long was that, over a long well, time? Well, she, or? I felt as if I gave birth to her <laughs> when, um, when we finished, yeah. that I, I learned to love her more. Um, I felt how, how much she suffered. Yes. I didn't know that she suffered so much. 
And had you written the book by the time she died, or were you no, writing? No, no. Actually, I, I I wrote the first two chapters because um, all of a sudden, one time she said, um, "Daughter, I don't want you to write about um, about poverty." Because the first two chapters were about how she, they were very poor in the South mm. when, when the father left. She said, no, no, now um, I'm in Beirut. Everything I am well-to-do. Um, I have um, a helper, and you help me with your car and driver. So everybody thinks that I have a car and a driver. And now you're going to talk about poverty, how I, I used to go and, you know, um, some, sometimes she and her mother, my grandmother, they would go after all the harvest uh, leave to look into the soil for, for you know, for grain. for grain and everything and uh, for wild mushrooms. And she said, no way, no way. I remember coming back to, to uh, London thinking, that's it, I'm not going to write this book. And I was having lunch with Helena Kennedy. And I told Helena, Helena said, so Hanan, uh, are you proceeding with your mom? I said, I don't think I'm going to, to write this book. Why? She doesn't want me to, to write about poverty, although I feel it's so important. Mm. She said, write it, write it down, and read it to her. Yes. And then le let us see what I will happen. I can understand that it's, it's a sort of writer's worst nightmare that you have this wonderful story presented to you and then someone starts telling you how yeah. to write it yes. and not to write it and not to do this. And I, I can know. see why you just think, yeah. you know, it was, I'm just going to leave it. It's like a nightmare. I, uh, I said, yes, this is an idea. So I wrote the first two chapters. I remember reading them via the telephone and silence on the other side. <laughs> my mother was crying. She said, I loved, at the end, she said, go, my daughter, go. Write yeah. everything about poverty, about how I left you, about how I used to take you with me to that room of my lover, because you, 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 you write so honestly. And this is what I wanted, the, the true voice, and, and then, It'd be I lovely to hear, to hear you read a little bit um, okay. from the book. Yes, I will, I will read. I'm going to read um, from when my mother was forced to marry my father. A single drop of blood. Muhammad became as important to me as eating bread. When he gave me a bunch of violets, my mind went a flutter and my heart pounded. Was the bunch of violets really for me? I'd ask, and he'd reply that it was. I began to pirouette like a butterfly. Then the day arrived when a single drop of blood on my underwear sent me crying in a panic to fight me, the seamstress convinced I was about to die. It would seem that when I spotted blood on my underwear and assumed it meant I was going to die, I was not too far off. It was as if that single drop of blood was an alarm bell, one that could cancel time by days, months, and years. 
My family tricked me into letting someone take my measurements by pretending I was the same size as Khadija's cousin, who couldn't be there for a fitting. But then I found, quite by chance, a white wedding dress and realized I was about to be married. I burst into tears and began to, te to tear at my hair, holding my hands up to mother and Khadija to show them I really had pulled out a clump of it. Don't do this to me, I screamed, beating my chest. God have pity, God have pity. I ran to Fatme to tell her what was happening. She confessed that my brother-in-law had only let me learn how to sew so I could become a carbon copy of his former wife, Manifa. Even you fought me, I sobbed. Why didn't you warn me? Why didn't you scream at my brother-in-law and shame him? How on earth could I have believed that my family wanted me to learn to sew so I'd have a profession? How could you do this to me? I asked mother through my tears. She cried too, and so did Khadija. But they had tricked me, and now they were trying to talk me into the marriage. The hearts of three children lay in my hands, I was told. If I married their father, they would be able to bounce back and live normal lives. If I refused, then a cruel stepmother would let their hearts slowly fade and eventually cease beating. Everything about my nephews made people sad. If they laughed, people began to cry because their mother would never get to hear their laughter. Even their religious names were a source of grief. Hussein was named after the Prophet's grandson, who was martyred and beheaded. His brother Hassan was poisoned, and Imam Ali, the Prophet's son-in-law, was murdered before his two sons. I went to see my music-loving, easy-going brother Hassan, who had by now married two women he loved. In tears, I begged him to come to my rescue. Mother and Ibrahim were forcing me into marriage when I was only 13 years old. Aren't you the eldest brother? I asked. He is younger than you. He has to li listen to you. Be patient, he replied, stroking my shoulder. I dried my eyes and blew my nose and waited for him to finish his sentence. But as soon as I calmed down a bit, he sighed his lute and asked if I'd like to hear him sing, O Rose of Purest Love. Keep them on the run, was Fatmi's suggestion. In other words, make a series of impossible requests in return for agreeing to be married. That's will win you more time, she said, especially since Abu Hussein's such a skin flit. Back in Nabatiye, I had heard fairy tales in which this type of bargaining was crucial. I remembered the story of clever Hassan. I want a peck of wheat from the stomach of a sparrow, but only if the bird has a blue feather in its wing, the right wing, never the left. I also remembered the tale of the tall black jinni who appeared from the magic bottle and said, hey ho, greetings, I'm here to do your bidding, the hag said. Put me on your back and fly me to land where there are shoes that can talk, stamp, and clap. 
It always worked in the stories, so I decided to try. My first demand was for roast chicken, but it had to be from a restaurant. Otherwise, I knew they'd bring me a chicken, keep it in the bathroom for several days, fatten it up a bit, and then slaughter it and cook it for the entire family. I was convinced that no one in our household would set foot in a restaurant. Such places were for rich, sophisticated people. To my great disappointment, the roast chicken duly arrived. Purchased reluctantly by my, my, by, by my brother-in-law, I pounced on it voraciously and began to swallow the flesh in chunks, sucking on the bones, even crunching on some of them, ignoring Ibrahim's disapproving glare. Two days later, after getting the chicken, I let it be known that I still had no wish to marry my brother-in-law. Although we were living in the same apartment, I made myself scarce. When I heard him, I'd disappear. When they asked me why I was so scared of him, I shouted at them that I was too young to be married. When my aunt arrived from Nabatiye for a consultation about the snake in her stomach, she listened to my protests and then joined my family's campaign. She scolded me for being so selfish and not thinking about my sister's three children. My next demand was that mother and my aunt take me to the cinema. Mother let out a shriek and asked for God's forgiveness. Good grief, she said. I've lost two daughters in their prime, withering like basil leaves on the stem, and you expect me to go to the cinema? I reassured her that the film I had in mind was a comedy without love scenes or singing. Do you want to make me laugh? Is that it? Why do you think I need to laugh? My aunt, however, urged her to take me so I'd agree to get married. Now tell me, mother asked, will you agree to marry your brother-in-law or are you just playing games with us, you jinni of the fields? I swore by the Prophet, Imam Ali, and the memory of my two dead sisters that this time I wouldn't change my mind. I went straight over to the mirror to fix my hair, feeling overjoyed that for the first time ever I could go to the cinema without feeling guilty or afraid that Ibrahim might catch me. On our way there, we passed a striptease cabaret. My heart was in my mouth for fear mother would look up and her eyes fall on the scandalous pictures posted outside. To my relief, I saw she was lowering her headscarf over her eyes, which were weak in any case. But then the cabaret man at the door shouted, just a quarter, that's all. A quarter lira, dancing, shimmying, jiggling breasts, are swaying, all for a quarter. Mother heard every word. Get away, you son of a bitch. She screeched at him. I sighed her by the hand and dragged her away. We went into the cinema and found our seats. I watched again as, as the rays of light and dust hit the screen. But the lights had only just gone down when people in the back seats started to shout, tell that tall one to move further back, get her to sit in the back row. I realized my aunt was perched on the top of the, her seat. 
Just stand up a moment and I'll adjust your seat, I offered. But she shouted back, may God bury the people alive who turned off the lights. We are in Beirut, aren't we? There is no need to economize. Tell them to put the lights on so I can see what's in front of me. First, we watched a newsreel about the war in Europe. I'd learned the faces of the leaders from stickers that were sold everywhere in Beirut. An Italian with a square head, a German with a trimmed mustache who was extremely upset and annoyed, and a fat Englishman with an equally fat black cigarette in his hand. I thought he held a black cigarette because he was in mourning for the start of the war. There were scenes of tanks racing each other across the countryside. A tank approached the camera and its image filled the screen, bringing my aunt to her feet once more. Where on earth have you brought us? She yelled. I tugged my aunt's hand, trying to get her to sit down to the accompaniment of jeers and catcalls. The newsreel came to an end and the film began. It was Laurel and Hardy, who reminded me of Abu Hussein and Ibrahim. Laurel, the thin, short one with little to say, was my brother-in-law. <laughs> Hardy. Hardy, who was fat and big with a tiny mustache and a short temper, was gloomy Ibrahim. I was soon laughing so hard I had to keep slapping my, she- my cheeks. Mother fidgeted in her seat. In the name of heaven, she shouted finally, jumping up. Enough is enough. Tell them to calm down and stop making such a fuss. They keep running back and forth like the shuttle on a sewing machine. My eyes can't take it anymore. Oh, for pity's sake, why don't you just sit down, a man shouted at mother. With that, my aunt turned round. Pipe down, you good for nothing, she yelled. How dare you talk to us without even being introduced? (laughs) Proud of myself and my tactics, I went to Fatma's house to tell her how I was stalling the marriage with my demands. What makes you think you are such a hot shot, she said. Asking for roast chicken and a trip to the cinema? It's a gold watch and cold gold bracelets you should be asking for. So I went home straight away and asked for the things Fatmi had suggested. That night, I slept well. I was confident that that sort of money would never leave my brother-in-law's pocket. He scolded us if the tap was left dripping. When the soap was as thin as a piece of peel, he attached it to a fresh bar. And once, when the cat stole the meat he'd brought home, he stood there aghast, holding the empty wrapping, turning it over in disbelief, and then began to weep. I quickly put the remaining piece of fat on a plate next to his prayer mat as he prayed, hoping that perhaps God would hear him and change that piece of fat back into a piece of meat. But this time, the only miracle was that my brother-in-law did not refuse my requests. Instead, he bought me everything I asked for. When I saw the gold in mother and Khadija's hands, I fainted. The next thing I heard was, bring some rose water, quickly, bring rose water. The scent must have loosened my tongue because I began begging the two of them. His old, 
I kept repeating while still only half conscious. He's an adult and I'm still young, only a child. I echoed all that I heard Fatima, her uncle and Muhammad say. At Fatima's house, early the next morning, I found Muhammad waiting for me by the garden gate. Before I could say a word, he asked me to get my family to delay things for six months. By then, he'd have graduated from his training to become a member of the government and found a job with the Securité Générale, the government's interior ministry. As we walked into the garden again, I felt as if we were in a film. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mohammed placed his hand over his head, his heart, and grasped me by the shoulders. Don't give in, no matter how much they pressure you, he said. Just six months and we will be engaged. Don't be afraid. He took a small photograph of himself out of his coat and handed it to me. I put it in my bra with a sigh. Promise me you won't get married, whatever happens. I promise, I repeated after him, I won't get married. I decided I'd promise the family to get married in six months' time, when I was 14. I would use the extra time to persuade mother to stand by me and then put pressure on Ibrahim to release me from the engagement. But that night, when I heard Abu Hussein's footsteps on the stairs and Ibrahim shouting at one of his daughters, I changed my mind. I decided to escape to the south and ask father to save me and let me stay with him for six months. Thank you. I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you came to be a writer. I mean, it seems in a way reading this book extraordinary that you came from a household where your father was such a strict religious man and your mother was this lady who couldn't read or write and was absent that you could become this international novelist that you've become today. But I also am not so surprised because there's so much spirit um, in your mother and then I think obviously in you too. But will you tell us how you began to write? Um, I remember writing the first time I wanted to really put something on paper. Um, I was like 14 years old. Um, I, I wanted to, we, we, were t we went to see my mother 
in the mountain. We used to visit her, not too much, but sometimes. And I heard her singing, and I said, oh, I'm going to write, write this, uh, this down. So I would not only remember, so I would really um, be assured that this is what happened. And so I learned from that moment that whenever I want to show certain feelings, I have to write them down so they would be um, uh, true and they would last forever. Because there's one thing that, I, um, that you talk about in the book, in the prologue, about how, in a way, when you decided that you kind of cut yourself off from your mother when she left, but that you decided that a voice cared for you and a voice would guide you and a voice would answer your questions and dress you and help you. And I wondered if that was part of your creativity and, the, and it was the voice that led you into writing. Yes, of course. Yeah, the, the, the voice which um, I think this, or creativity, you see things different sometimes from, from others. And, uh, and um, also you want to express certain feelings and I thought the best thing is by writing them. By, by writing them. This is when you really express them, express them very well. Um, and also I remember um, when one time I was sitting in a coffee shop with a friend of mine and my eldest brother was passing by, he saw me, and he came into the coffee shop and he took me by the hand uh, and I felt humiliated. And what did I do? I wrote about the episode and I sent it to a newspaper. And the editor loved it. <laughs> he published it in uh, the students' uh, pages. And I was like 16 years old. And all the neighborhood couldn't believe that one, uh, I was published in, in the leading newspaper. They couldn't, they didn't care what I've written, only the mere fact that my name appeared in the newspaper was, was very important. And your family? And they, my family were, were so happy. Oh, my so father well. didn't read it, but he was so happy. Even so my well. brother, whom I talked badly about him, he was so proud. <laughs> and since then, I, I started writing. Uh, I wrote my first novel, actually, when I was 19 years old. And um, usually in, in Lebanon and in the Arab world, uh, when you love writing, you don't sit and write. Maybe nowadays it, it's different, but at my, I, my, my time, you don't sit and write novels at home. You become a journalist. Right. You become a journalist, you write in journalism, and then you write on, on the side, and, and then you publish books and, and things like that. But is it, was it quite common that a woman would become a journalist and go into that field? Yes, in Lebanon, yes. Right. Yeah, in Lebanon it was... Actually, we were all fetid, all the women journalists. I mean, we, uh, people would, uh, uh, would think that we are, you know, a novelty. Right. And, and we could go anywhere. I remember at the age of 18, I went even to the prime minister asking him about his first love right. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, write, uh, to, to write an interview with him, and he accepted, yes, because I was a woman journalist. 
And then um, when you started to um, live abroad and write, your fiction changed. I remember you were saying that um, when you, when the Civil War happened and you were living, was it in London? In London, yes. And you started to write the story of Zara, which was the first book that was was translated in. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that you, yeah. it, um, it wasn't uh, published in Lebanon originally. No, uh, it was my third novel. Right. I've I've written two novels before uh, before 1975. This is when the war, the civil war, erupted in Lebanon. And I, I remembered, uh, I came to, to London uh, with my two children, with Juman, who was four months old, and Tariq, who was two years old. And um, of course, I, I couldn't believe uh, that I'm going to, um, to live away from Lebanon. So I thought, a few weeks, and then we'll go back. But we stayed and stayed. The first six months, I thought, why did I leave? Isn't it because to protect myself and the children, and then to protect life? I should, who am I? I'm a novelist, a writer. So why don't I sit and write about what's, what's going on in, my, in myself, in my mind, in my heart, also what's happening in, in Lebanon? And I remember sitting and writing. I think the fear of the war inspired me so much. The violence and fear inspired me to, to go and study, to go back in memory and study when I was very scared, when I was a little girl. And this is when I wrote Story of Zahra. Mm -hmm. I thought I would be writing about two wars the war, the actual war, which happened in Lebanon, and the, the turmoil in oneself mm. when facing the question, life or death, the whole time. And I found myself not thinking that this novel is going to be published. I thought I want to pour all the anger of what's happening in, back in Lebanon and with traditions and with taboos. So I was writing as if not caring about anything. I, I wasn't, um, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking that, oh, I shouldn't be using this term or this phrase or that word. I just poured everything into writing, uh, into that um, novel. And then, of course, when I finished, I thought, of course, I'm going to publish it now. <laughs> and your, your publisher who published the other books no, was too it shocked? No, yeah, <laughs> it was turned down. I went to nine publishers, right. and it was turned down. They thought, first of all, politically, it was against the war, or the war from the all, all sides. I wasn't with that part, against that part. I was against the war. And, um, and, and they didn't like it because even publishing at that time were, uh, were divided. Right. This publisher the right, for the right for the Palestinian, the other publisher for the Christians, and even publishing houses were divided. Mm -hmm. So nobody wanted it. Plus, they thought it was very explicit 
I, I talk about sexuality very frankly, very openly. I, um, I dissected the Arab family in, uh, and I shed a light which nobody liked this light. It was very crude. The, the language was very bold and, and draw. And uh, I used a dialect. I, I think I was not, uh, I was um, not the first, but from the first who really used dialect, southern dialect. Usually you have to write with classical Arabic, et cetera, et cetera. So I, this novel was, you know, very, very different and it was refused. And I remember getting, um, I remember opening the window, the last refusal, uh, all, um, uh, all the papers were with me and I didn't have a photocopy. It's not like now you have the email, you have the uh, computer, and I remember opening the window and telling my friend, who used to be the director um, of publishing f for children, and I said I'm going to throw <laughs> the paper so every citizen in Beirut will catch one paper and read it. It's enough for me. <laughs> she said, yes, enough for you. She closed the window and she said, we are publishing, girl. We are going to publish it. Give me $1,000 and let us publish it, uh, publish it, you and me. And this is what we did. And then this was the book that got translated into French and won awards. French and, and now and into 19 or 20 languages, and it won many prizes, and now it's published, of course, in, in the first publisher who refused it. And They're um, the ones who published it now in yes, Arabic? Yes, yes, in Arabic. That's very gratifying. Yes, very. I am a neighbor of Hanan, not exactly from the Lebanon, but from Egypt. From Egypt? From Egypt, oh. and there is a lot of similarities, and of course, of differences. You were talking, I mean, your mother, I think she belongs. If she was in Egypt, she would have belonged to an earlier generation when children of 12, 13, 14 were sought after by usually older and richer men. And of course, uh, there was nothing, nothing like that. Now, I mean, they were utterly, utterly innocent, more than Eve before she had So, I mean, your description, your mother's description of, uh, of her, you know, her betrothal and how frightened she was and how young she was, I mean, it reminded me all indeed, of my mother. Who of had your mother? My mother, yes. She had her fairest daughter. I mean, this is what we think is a virgin birth because she conceived before she saw blood. Oh. You know, it was fantastic. I think she was 12 or 13 when she had her fairest daughter who was 20 years older than I. But you know, this is a generation. Changes, things have changed. And I'm talking about the social, the social climate, the social background. 
Well, in Egypt, I do not know if you have that proverb in the Lebanon. When the girl reaches dream, that is to say, when she reads the biological maturity, she asks God of two things. Either the grave or Jabr. It's something protection, like dignity, like sort of, of, of guardianship. And that is the way how they conceived marriage at that time. Mm. Thank you. We've got to keep questions short. Thank you very much. You, you, you know, I think my, my mother also um, wanted to tell her story. So people refrain from forcing their daughters to get married at an early age. And, and, and to learn from her story how to love their daughters in a household fu full of men and... Is this book published uh, in Lebanon? Of course, yes. It's still, you know, published in Lebanon and uh, it is dis distributed everywhere in the Arab countries. Yeah. That's because you work very closely with the translator, don't you? I, I read that you always write in Arabic because you yes, think in Arabic. I Arabic. always write in Arabic, always, always, <laughs> except um, the plays. Right. I don't know. The plays, I feel, maybe because they're going to stage here, and I have uh, uh, the dialogue is very easy for me. When did you yeah. start writing plays? Um, Twelve years ago. I was commissioned to write the first play, and then I thought, oh, it's interesting. <laughs> and do you find it very different? Yes, very different. Uh, more difficult fiction. or, or um, easy to say? It is more difficult, because in uh, writing a novel or a short story, you have all the time. You can describe things you don't, not necessarily to the text, but you like this description. But in a play, it's, you are like, uh, you have to be a dictator. Not even one word has to be not, uh, not interested or it has to convey other, uh, uh, other uh, uh, how shall I say it, um, action, act, right. action. Yes, yeah. you can't you diversify. No, no, you can't. no, no. Novel no. is such a luxurious so, so, form. Of course. There's nothing you can't do. Yes, with you lie down, you recline, and writing yes. novels, but in theatre, no. Each, each, absolutely, each word is very, should be very precise, and it has to lead to something, to an action. And um, you writing plays at the moment? I know you said something about the Arabian Nights, and I wasn't sure what you were. Ah, uh, the Arabian Nights. Um, uh, well, I'm working with Tim Supple. I'm, uh, we're going to choose between us few uh, stories, and then I'll write them in my own. Uh, I mean, I'm going to be very faithful, of course, to the Arabian Nights, but it's in my own way of thinking and language. Yeah. And is this for a production where they all production, meet various yes, stories it will be, together yes, in one? Yes, it is the Arabian night, That's one thousand and one night, mm -hmm. but we will choose only a few. Yes. Yeah, it's a big production. And has that got a And Robert Irwin is going, is helping us, and <laughs> who's here sitting now, and he, uh, we lean on him all the time because he's an expert on the Arabian Nights. <laughs> um, I was, uh, um, when I was doing some research on Hannah, and I, I read something that I really loved. It was a little bit like uh, when she talked about the voice that looked after her, <laughs> about uh, there's a group of 
writers that you know in London who um, don't come from London originally, and you imagine that there is a place that you come from, <laughs> but it isn't necessarily anywhere that you know, but you know it's there somewhere, and that that's sort of the place that you belong. And I love the idea that it's somewhere hovering. Hovering. hovering we don't know where it, where it is, but we are. We all belong to this place. Yes, and, <laughs> and I imagine the characters in your plays belong, belong to this to place. Belong to that place, yes. <laughs> There's, any, there's a few more questions. Thank you. Um, you were talking earlier about, um, you referred to your father, and um, Esther said that he was very strict and religious, and I wondered if you might say a bit more about that, and, and just, you know, in the sense of your own life uh, and your mother's life, in the sense of the religion and the patriarchal roles, which I'm sure has obviously been very important to you and yes. your sense of how you have become who you are. <laughs> well, my, my father was very religious, but he wasn't at all fanatic. He believed in education for girls, and he thought that the girls in, um, and the family were superior to the boys. So he said, I'm going to send you to better schools than your brothers. <laughs> yes. And, uh, but he, he, he was like a Sufi. He, he, was, he didn't care about anything except actually religion and praying and his work. So in a way, it was. He, he loved me, I loved him. But the disappointment was that we couldn't have any dialogue, he and me, at all. Because, you know, he was like on another world completely, away from the world we, we are living in. But at the same time, he never, he never stood in the way of my education, of the way of uh, the way I wanted to live at all. He thought that I should be doing whatever I want to. Um, I remember when I wanted to go to Egypt to study. I just wanted to leave home at an early age. I was like 17 years old. And to obtain a passport, I had to go to the police station with my father and a witness. Uh, so they would ask him, why does your daughter want a passport? And he has to agree that they would issue me a passport and things like that. So I remember he took his um, friend, another sheikh, with a turban as a witness. And I didn't want to even walk with both of them. I walked on, I crossed the road, and <laughs> they walked on one side, on the street, and I walked on the other pavement. And I heard them talking, the, the, uh, the uh, sheikh, the religious sheikh was asking my father, why does your daughter want to, to go? Where is she going? And my father said, she's going to Egypt to study. And the sheikh said, yes. Seek knowledge even in China. This is, you know, one of Prophet's saying, or uh, Ali ibn Abi Talib, the Prophet, the grandson. And my father said, yes, 
but I'm happy she's not going to China. <laughs> she's going to Egypt, not far. And of course, I laughed and I giggled and I didn't want to walk with them. I didn't think at that time how naive they were, both of them. You know, I was 17 years old. I wanted to be free from the family and going to Egypt on my own. And if you look at me at that time, I didn't look innocent at all. And yet they felt, oh, she's going to go to Egypt to seek knowledge. This is when now when I recall the dialogue between my father and the religious man, I thought this is what believes, believers are, the true believers are. They wouldn't really strict you or suffocate you. But at the same time, I always think, how did he marry my, fa my mother? How did he accept to marry my mother when she was only 14 years old? Is it ignorance or what is it? I, when the book was published in, in Arabic, my nieces and nephews, they were really shocked because they loved their uh, grandfather. He's very, very kind. And they said, oh, but grandfather wasn't like that, Not, nothing like to what you described him. I said, well, this is how my mother saw him. And he married her, and, and the proof is that my eldest sister, she gave birth to my eldest sister when she was 15 years old. Yeah. Uh, how, how do you find Lebanon these days? <laughs> well, I'm happy um, with I'm happy how the elections, the result of the elections, I'm happy that in a way Lebanon is still, not I'm happy, the Lebanon is still divided, and I'm happy that uh, not one of the factions have won. Hi, hello. Hi. I first Hi. read you at university, the story of Zahra, and I remember being really shocked at the subject matter. Uh, most of us were, I'm Lebanese-American, and I just wanted to say now, are you still shocking, or are people, are you influencing the new generation of um, Lebanese or Middle Eastern writers, or are you still continuing to push the boundaries? Know, the boundaries, <laughs> exactly. Well, when, when, I'm, when I read for Lebanese or, you know, Arab writers, I feel that they're, they're really gone far in their writing, in criticizing society and writing whatever they like. They're very uh, explicit, more than me, and... Um, I think the Arabic novel is going to be in good hands because there are so many voices and uh, so many freedom in the writing, whether in language or the concept, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the language or what they are talking about. It's, it's very important. 
and um, they go, they've gone so far in express, expressing themselves, expressing the situation socially, politically. And um, I don't know if they regard me. The question is, do they regard me still as a rebel? I don't know. I have no clue. <laughs> we probably have one, time for just one more question. I would like to ask you, would you see yourself in the future writing in English, having been living in the UK for over 20 years? I don't think so. Because the other day I had to write um, 4,000 words, and I thought it's so easy. I write them in English and finish with that. I couldn't. Honestly, I couldn't. So I had to write it in Arabic and then translate it myself into English and then give it to a friend to edit it. Yeah, so I don't think, uh, because I, I think in Arabic all the time. Yeah. And uh, I dream still in, in Arabic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. Mm. 